If you've ever wondered how ecotourism began, or what birding was like in the 60s and 70s when hotspots were first being found, or if you've ever wondered how someone could figure out a way to turn their passion for birding and conservation into a career, then you'll enjoy this interview with Suzanne Luther Methvin. Suzanne started her love for birding in the San Francisco Bay Area before eventually visiting and leading tours to every continent on the planet. She has rubbed shoulders with some of our birding community's pioneering leaders while being one herself, although not necessarily in the bright lights of fame. Even in retirement, Suzanne is passing along her love for birding and has found many creative ways to pass the baton of caring for our planet to the next generation while remaining committed to raising money for conservation science. It is my distinct honor to welcome Suzanne to the Voices of Birding History. I started birdwatching in 1966 uh, uh, in Hayward. Uh, I had just married uh, John Luther, who is a birdwatcher, and uh, we had gone to college together in Wisconsin, but he grew up in the Bay Area and was working on his master's degree at Cal State Hayward and was studying marble godwits along the Hayward shoreline, uh, the movement of the whole flock to go out feeding. Uh, it's a large shorebird that approximately 3,000, 3 to 4,000 of them winter along that portion of San Francisco Bay. So he was studying where they went out, at what time they went out to feed when they were here in the fall, winter, and spring. Uh, so I uh, I learned about bird watching and shorebirds and all kinds of other birds uh, on the mud flats of San Francisco sure. Bay, and also Sonoma Regional Park where John was working as a camp director for a nature camp. So we kind of alternated our time between Sonoma and the mud flats of San Francisco Bay. Uh, and I just got very excited about birding because I love being outdoors, but learning about what was there and just the huge diversity just uh, floored me. And I would imagine that you were meeting people along the way when you were doing this. Uh, John's master professor, Howard Cogswell at Cal State Hayward, was quite an active conservationist as well as birder. And uh, he helped form the Ohlone Audubon uh, during those late 60s, which John became uh, president of, and I became very active in conservation. So we met many people uh, through that Audubon Society, and uh, we're going on field trips all the time with those people. Also, Howard's other students who were getting their master's degrees under them, we went on birding trips with them to Point Reyes and to the Central Valley to see all the wildfowl, particularly one of our lifetime friends we met through Howard, Roseanne Rowlett, who was from Texas but was working on her master's, and she's, mm. she's one of my best friends, and I ended up guiding with her later on in life. But we did we spent quite a bit of birding time with her up and down the state in, I guess that was the early 70s and late 60s when we met her. Well, this was sort of the beginning of the explosion of birding following after Roger Torrey Peterson's book and efforts, you know, a number of other uh, books that were coming out. What was, what was the birding community like then? What was happening in the birding world? I would say that it was loosely connected at that time in, in the late 60s. There was an organization called California Field Ornithologists mm -hmm. that was active in the state of active birders who were very serious about what was being seen in the state and they were keeping the state record. We became involved birding 
with many of them, uh, Rich Stahlkup here in Northern California and Guy McCaskey in Southern California. Uh, John Bean, uh, a biologist, uh, was serious about conservation and ecology and studying birds. So, so we, we were approaching it from looking at birds and loving to bird watch, but also from a conservation point of view. Mm. And just enjoying being outdoors. We loved camping. So we started birding at some of the local kind of hot spots. Rich Stalkup had, had been birding and was active with Howard Cogswell and others in founding Point Reyes Bird Observatory at, in those 60s as well, mid 60s. And we joined that organization as well. So we, we got to know people through birding in all of these circles, and Rich became a very close friend, and he was finding that many rarities were showing up out on the point at Point Reyes in Marin right. County. And so in all of these clumps of cypress trees, so we started birding these clumps in the spring and fall with him, and then down in Monterey, uh, the CFO, California Field Ornithologist, was also hosting pelagic trips uh, out of San Diego and out of uh, Monterey. And so right. we started going on uh, our first pelagic trips to see new birds for us, live birds, and we got hooked on pelagic birding, first of all out of San Diego and, and then out of Monterey. The CFO decided to join with other organizations in western states and became the WFO in the early 70s and... They asked me to organize their first conference, annual conference, and also to organize their pelagic trips. So for a few years in the early 70s, I organized pelagic trips for them, mostly out of Monterey, but also out of Bodega Bay and Humboldt, Arcata. So we became very, very active birding up and down the state with what right. we would call hardcore birders, uh, finding new birds for the state list, new birds for us. And so we were in touch by telephone because there was no uh, internet at the time. Uh, we would get a call from Southern California, from Guy or, or one of our other friends in Southern Cal, and they'd say that such and such a bird had shown up uh, in Death Valley or Guy had found something at the right. Salton Sea. So we would say, we'll see you tomorrow morning, and we wow. would drive all night and... Uh, we had a fairly flexible schedule, even though John was working full-time, but he managed to cram his his uh, teaching into two days a week so that we could bird five days a week uh, in the 70s. So uh, we would meet in different parts of the state and t with friends from Southern Cal and Northern California. And also during that time, uh, we were all, there was a lot of communication because we were in the field so much. There was a lot of communication about the best times of year to see certain species. And so in 73 and 74, we, there was a bunch of us that decided to do big years in California. Hmm. And so we, we did it in 73. And the goal was to see over 400 species in the state. And there were loosely probably uh, around 10 of us doing that, maybe more right. even, the big year that year. And we all made it over over 400 species that year. I, I was pregnant and delivered our son during that year, but was 
only out of the field for two weeks, and then then uh, our son David and I were back in the field wow. <laughs> in the fall. Uh, we liked it so much and decided that we could fine-tune it even better, so we did it in another year, 74, and did better our scores a little bit more that year. So... So that was that was uh, what we call hardcore birding. Lots of fun birding with friends up and down the state and finding new species. What was the major uh, motivation to to do the big year? Was it just sort of a natural evolution, or was there a trigger? Oh, I think it was just a lot of us just wanted to see more species right. <laughs> in the state. And guy who has the top list in the state and had the biggest list at that time. Uh, he, he lives in San Diego and has birded San Diego County and Death Valley and Imperial County regularly for some, I don't know, 50 years or more. So he, he, he kind of motivated us all because he had seen so much in the state. We decided that up. it was time for us to, we, we, it was just a natural evolution of birding at the time. So, so that was not necessarily an explosion of, of birders at the time. I think, think what led to like an explosion was the teaching of classes for birders. And Joe Moreland had started teaching classes at a number of institutions in the Bay Area. In oh, after after that, around it might have been seventy-four or seventy-five that he started teaching classes. And I had been trained as a teacher, and I was looking for a part-time job in seventy-six. And uh, Joe said, here, why don't you teach some of the classes at Piedmont Adult School because I have too many classes to teach because he was teaching in San Francisco. So I started teaching classes then. So I think with all of the students, I had a couple hundred students in the 10 years that I taught classes. Joe, many, many more and still teaches classes. And then other many other people teach classes now. Uh, so I think there was just an explosion of people in the field who, who wanted to learn, who knew what they were looking at and wanted to learn more, sure. and who were had been going to some of these hot birding spots and seeing how much fun it was uh, with us. And so, so I think that led to a real explosion of birding in the Bay Area. Uh, it used to be we knew everybody that was out there birding, you know, there'd be a handful full of people birding in the late 60s and early 70s at the various clumps of trees at Point Reyes. Right. Uh, then suddenly when we're teaching classes and other people were teaching classes and Audubon Society started leading groups out there, there's like groups of 30 at a time, you know, at each spot. So that was, that was, that all of that led to a huge explosion. Yeah. When did you start doing the international birding? Was it about that same um, time? We, John and I actually went down to Mexico in 72 on a camping trip with Roseanne Rowlett all the way down the East Coast to Palenque looking at birds. The touchstone was really going to Southeast Arizona in 71. And for me, seeing an elegant trogon in Cave Creek Canyon, I had to go south and see more tropical birds. It just electrified me to realize that there were birds like that living in the wild. And so we went to, we went down all the way to, to Palenque in the summer of 72. And then one of our friends, Cal, 
uh, was doing his doctorate in Columbia studying birds, and so there was a group of us who who birded regularly together who decided we wanted to go to Columbia to bird because the birding, the American Birding Association had recently been founded at, in the early 70s, and there was an article that came out on the best birding road in the world, which was called the Buenaventura Road in Colombia, mm. which went from Cali down to the coast uh, through quite a few life zones. So we decided that we were going to do this this trip in Colombia in the summer of 74, and we spent a year studying for it because there was no bird book at the time. Uh, except for a very old one that had only a very few pictures of the birds available. So we studied the dead skins of the birds at at, uh, Cal in the Vertebrate Museum to prepare for it. And then we went down and uh, met Van Remsen down there. He was doing his study. And so the 10 of us were there for a month. We birded in the Andes for two weeks and in the Amazon out of Leticia for two weeks and took a float plane into northwestern Peru along the Havari River, uh, lived with a <laughs> camping out, essentially, in, in a small group of native uh, indigenous peoples there. So we, we got hooked on international birding through, through birding in, in southeast Arizona because of all of the, the birds that come up from Mexico, from the Sierra Madre and into the mountains there of southeast Arizona, the Huachucas and the Chiricahuas. But Mexico, you know, only whet our appetite, and Colombia was fairly overwhelming but exciting. So we, we vowed at the end of that trip we were not going to go anywhere until there was a bird book just because even though we... We identified over 400 species. We saw far more than that, but could not identify them. And so uh, now I think people regularly see 500 uh, or more on a on a trip down to Colombia in a, in a couple of weeks. But they have bird guides and a very good field guide. But that was an eye opener to many new families of birds for us. So we were hooked on international birding as well as just loving, you know the camping here, and uh, we love all aspects of birding, not not just rare birding. Did you have any uh, appreciation for or sense of, of what was happening kind of on a global scale in terms of the mapping of hotspots, the, uh, you know, the recording of what birds were there, those types of things? Well, at that time, the American Birding Association was really the only way that we read about what other people were doing internationally, because this is the 70s. I started leading some international tours in the 70s. I was asked to co-lead some trips uh, by my good friend Roseanne Rowlett for for Victor Emanuel Nature Tours. So in 79, we started out, she asked me to co-lead and help her develop the California tour, which which we did for two years together. And then she asked me to co-lead a trip to Guatemala with her in 79. We did that together two different years, uh, going into Tikal and burning the highlands. So Victor had just started his company in the late 70s. And at that point, the tape recorders were very bulky as well as the recording 
equipment that you took into the field, but Roseanne and the other guides carried those with them uh, into the field and recorded the birds that we were hearing. So that's when the the recordings started as far as guides from the U.S., because other... Other companies like Wings started around that same time as well. I don't know if they were recording them in the field or not. We always kept records of everything we saw. Many of the birders uh, were were biologists, so uh, but others who didn't have that as a background, many of them were studying to be lawyers. Many of the people we were birding with in California were still in school. Some of them were studying to be lawyers and other professions, but Guy McCaskey was was quite a record keeper. He he was from Scotland and brought over the whole way the birding was done, looking extremely carefully at every individual of bird and distinguishing subspecies and races of different species and writing those down. So the whole group of people, especially that he mentored in Southern California, kept extremely good records. And then right. up here, many of them being scientists, were keeping extremely good records. And, of course, we were all working on our world list. So, of course, we're keeping our world list, our state list, our life list, all of right. these things. Right, right. <laughs> Well, tell me about what birding has led to in your life. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, impacted my life tremendously. I embraced it wholeheartedly and loved every aspect and loved being able to teach people about birding. And when John and I went through a divorce, I knew that I needed to change careers. I didn't want to go back into teaching full-time in public schools, but that I loved teaching the field ornithology classes and birdwatching with my son's classes when he was growing up. So I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Roseanne had asked me to co-lead some trips with her. I had a birdwatching school through which... I offered a safari to Kenya, and the founder of the nature company, Priscilla Rubel, came on the trip and offered me a job to work at the nature company, and I became a safari director and developed safaris for them, and that led to a 25-year career in nature travel. That was like the beginning of ecotourism, and I was just happened to be there when it began and knew people who were involved in starting companies. And it was a dream come true, more than, than a dream that I could have ever realized mm. uh, could happen. So I was able to use my teaching skills and administrative skills in developing nature tours around the world for for the nature company and then in the 80s and then in the 90s, I worked as uh, general manager of Inca Floats, which, which specialized in, in nature tours in Galapagos and Peru and Ecuador. And uh, then I moved to Mountain Travel So Back in 97 and worked there until the fall of uh, 2006 as their operations manager for Galapagos and Costa Rica trips with side trips in the jungles and down into Peru. So was that when uh, you went to uh, started Antarctica? I I was able to uh, escort a couple of our trips to Antarctica. Uh, Mountain travel has has uh, worldwide yeah. trips. Uh, when I was at the Nature Company, we had a tiger tracking trip that I developed in India and Nepal, and so I co-led those trips. And we had. We started out with safaris in Kenya, which we ran uh, probably five or six full-month trips (laughs) 
in in Kenya that were tented safaris in kind of the height of the safari season. I went out of Africa, came out. We actually were there when they were filming the movie Hmm. on site in in the 80s. So and then Australia developed and Alaska developed trips as well. So so that was just a dream come true to eventually get to go to every continent and share uh, wildlife, teaching people about wildlife and conservation on all the continents with clients uh, at each of these, from each of these companies that I worked for. Well, you and I met from a birding perspective through your association with Point Blue, which was formerly Point Reyes Bird Observatory doing their annual birdathon. I know that's really important to you. I know that you have continued to be involved in educating elementary school students. You know, after retirement, you have continued. Tell us a little about what's important to you from a birding background and what your passions are at this point in your life. Yeah, when I retired from full-time work, I wanted to be able to give back. And I felt like one of my gifts was really to work with the next generation in teaching them about birds and caring for the wildlife that we share this planet with because everything's going to be in their hands uh, within a decade or so. And I feel that conservation is really important. And also, I just feel like bird watching itself is such a, a great activity that can lead either to a profession or a lifetime hobby of photography or just being out in nature or nature writing. Uh, there's many avenues that could lead to illustrating. And so I was able to make a connection with the local school here in Moraga where my son went to elementary school. And this is my fifth year in volunteering there with a fourth grade class with a teacher there who is interested in bird watching. And so I just was with the kids this morning. We take five five kids out each week. And one of my friends locally here in the community comes another day of the week as well, so that there's two of us per week that take five five of the kids out. Five bird different watching. kids each time. Right? Yeah, right. and they're broken in. The class is 25 kids, so approximately every other week they get to go out bird watching. But it's it's really amazing how they they really hear about this throughout the whole school and look forward to bird watching if they're going to be in Mrs. Culleton's class. And for example, I mean, it's so, so much fun. I mean, you never know what they're going to be talking about or asking questions about, but sometimes we just get into discussions of, of uh, why this bird has a different name in the Cornell eBird, and why did it have that name? Because they put their, they record their their birds that that we see each week in in Cornell eBird. So uh, we get into discussions about why the white-tailed kite was called the black-shouldered kite for a while, and then it became the white-tailed kite again, and and why you know there's yeah. there there's new species that get split, and all those kinds of questions that come up, but also just about, I do a slideshow on birds and animals I've seen around the world. I do that at the end of the year just to give them ideas about, you know, things that they could do in their life, expand their their world. So uh, we get into all kinds of discussions about conservation as well. Sure. Uh, 
So this is, I think, about 100, 100 kids here in Moraga at the end of this school year that, that I will have taught bird watching to. And it's rewarding to see them. A few years later, they'll come up to me in the grocery store and and I'll ask them if they're still bird watching, and they'll say, "Yeah, we still look at, at birds and have feeders in our yard." So I feel like I'm just planting seeds in teaching bird watching with this generation and with my own grandchildren. I love being out on walks with them and and doing puzzles with them with birds on them, and uh, talking about wildlife and and travel internationally as well. When you think back on your decades of being involved in birding. What do you think has been most fulfilling in all of that? I think, gosh, I think uh, it keeps you very alive and humble being being in touch with nature, with living beings, and studying them. I, I like studying them. I've, I've been involved in a couple of research projects. I've written about them for a couple of books that were published. I've written some chapters. I think it keeps you yourself alive and enthusiastic when you're in touch and out in nature. It's fulfilling being able to share it with other people. You know, it's inspiring being being out in nature for me. The people I've met, so many so many people, including you, uh, who have become friends through bird watching. So it it, it definitely uh, transformed my life from the direction that I had been heading. Mm-hmm. I had always loved nature, but never really, and loved being out in nature, but never really knew anything right. about what was surrounding me. It opened a whole new world around and me. And that which you could turn that exciting. into a career. Yeah. 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 And you also it's, mentioned to me before how fulfilling it is to have passed that passion and joy along to your son and your grandkids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a joy that not only that I know my son and his wife are working in conservation. He he teaches ornithology and and animal behavior and other biological sciences uh, at George Mason University in Virginia. And his wife works for American Bird Conservancy. Amy Upgren. It's fulfilling to know that they're carrying on uh, in conservation and in teaching the next generation. David's also involved in conservation in Brazil, where he did his research, and with the Smithsonian, uh, which he's a fe- he's a fellow of the Smithsonian. So it's so fulfilling also just talking with my eight-year-old grandson, Max. Uh, he can hardly wait to go to Galapagos and to Costa Rica. Since he was three years old, he's wanted to see a keel-billed toucan. Uh, so uh, I think Costa Rica is in the near future in the next couple of years with them. And, and uh, when his sister's a little bit older, to, to go to Galapagos and then hopefully on to some other countries. We'll meet them up in Vancouver this summer, where David's giving a talk for the International Ornithological Association, and we'll do some bird watching on the Olympic Peninsula and looking at old-growth trees and plants. And Yeah, it's most fulfilling to get to share with our family and with friends to take people out birding and just share share the joy of being out. And you don't know where that may lead to. Mm. Um, I, t- I go birdwatching with my niece, my brother's uh, daughter, 
uh, teaches locally in an ecology preschool in the Oakland Hills. Interesting. And her mom is a landscape designer, and so she knows a lot about plants, but she wants to know more about birds to teach the kids. So she and I, she asked me to go birding with her. So we meet regularly to go bird watching, mm. and I teach her about birds so she can teach them to the kids. So that's that's just a fulfilling life to be yes. able to share that with the younger generation, and they in turn can share it and, and do other things with their lives as well. Well, thank you, Suzanne, for spending time to talk about this and for sharing uh, something of the history of birding and also your passion for it. Very much appreciate that. Thank you, Ray. It's, it's been a joy to talk with you.